Chapter Six of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six in New Orleans. We were invaders and in our own land. I was to have plenty of time in which to appreciate the bitterness toward the northerner on the part of the people of a southern city which was noted for its hospitality to strangers. For the Mississippi was stationed off New Orleans as a guard ship for nearly a year. She was thought to be of too heavy draft to proceed up the river with the other ships in the spring of 1862, when Farragut made his first run past Vicksburg. Remaining behind with her was the Pensacola. Moreover, it was important that some naval force should keep the streets under its guns and be ready to assist the army. General Benjamin F. Butler's army of occupation was none too numerous to look after a population that was doing everything possible to hamper it, while no doubt the adult males who were still at home, most of them were up the river with the Confederate army, would have risen at the first opportunity. In fact, they often declared that they would yet drive the Yankees into the river. One of the forgings of the Mississippi's paddle-wheel had been broken. We could not repair it, and must have a new one to take its place. When we sought to have this made, we found that the only place with facilities was the foundry and shipworks that had been constructing the Confederate ironclads Louisiana and Mississippi. The owner positively refused to serve a Yankee ship in this fashion. We had to admire his loyalty to his cause, but war is war, and we needed the forging. So General Butler was informed of the refusal. He acted with customary promptness by putting the recalcitrant foundryman under arrest, and was about to send him to Fort Jackson, when his wife came on board the Mississippi to see Captain Smith. She said that her husband's health was very poor, and confinement in Fort Jackson, which was in an insalubrious location, must mean his death. He had changed his mind and would make the forging now if he were released. She had been timid about going to General Butler, whom New Orleans regarded as a veritable monster, but wouldn't Captain Smith intercede with the General? Captain Smith said that he had no interest in having her husband imprisoned, and he would much rather have him making the forging than on his way to Fort Jackson. He sent me to see the general. An eccentric, resourceful, determined character, hardly inclined to suavity, who had about the most thankless task that could fall to a general officer. He was in no danger of allowing sentiment to interfere with his rigorous sense of duty. He meant to make sure that there was no uprising against him and that his soldiers were respected. I found him in full uniform at a desk, with his sword on and two loaded revolvers lying in front of him, as a precaution against assassination, of which he was in some danger from the rougher elements of the population. He agreed with the view of Captain Smith, and while he was having a note written for the prisoner's release, I remember that he pointed to a chest in the room and said, That contains all of Judah P. Benjamin's private papers. Benjamin was then Secretary of State of the Confederacy. He afterward became Queen's Counsel with an immense practice as a barrister in England. I was able to deliver the note for the foundryman's release just as the boat with him on board, bound for Fort Jackson, was casting off from the wharf. 
On occasion the general could manifest a good deal of acerbity of temper. Some hitches occurred between the land and the sea forces, as usually happens when the two sister but distinct services, reporting to separate commands, are aiming to work in harmony. One of the general's cares was sanitation. He was guarding against an epidemic of yellow fever with a rigid quarantine. The Tennessee, one of the men-of-war under command of Captain Philip Johnson, came up the river and, contrary to the general's regulations, ran past quarantine. In fact, the ship had been off the yellow fever-infected port of Galveston on the blockade, but had never allowed any of her crew ashore. And her reason for not stopping was a good one. She was leaking badly, and the only way that she could stay afloat was by keeping her circulating pumps at work. If she stopped her engines, the pumps would stop. When Butler heard of this infraction of his rules, he sent for Captain Johnson, and, despite Johnson's explanation, broke into one of those abusive tirades of which he was known to be a master. "'I have a great mind to put you in the parish prison,' Butler announced in the presence of a number of his officers. "'Oh, no, you won't,' Johnson answered. "'And besides, you must not talk to me that way. "'If your own officers will permit it, I won't.' As a lawyer, Butler saw the point and waived the argument on this score, but he sent word to Commodore Henry W. Morris of the Pensacola, the senior naval officer present, that the regulations must be obeyed and the Tennessee must return and ride out her quarantine. Commodore Morris could be as urbane as Farragut. He was agreeable to the general's ultimatum, but he said that, inasmuch as there had been exchanges of visits between the Tennessee and the other vessels of the Navy lying in the river, their crews must also have been infected, and therefore they would all go to quarantine. This would leave the general's force of occupation without the moral support of the guns of the Navy commanding the streets, though he affected controversially not to have a very high opinion of the Navy. He had not so poor an opinion of it that he wanted to see us depart. So he allowed the crippled Tennessee to remain. She did not develop any cases of yellow fever. Butler was so extraordinary a character that perhaps another anecdote which refers to him may be worth repeating. When the Mississippi returned down the river after Farragut had anchored his fleet off New Orleans, we found a French gunboat at quarantine. She had been cruising along the coast, as many foreign gunboats were doing, looking after the interests of their nations, and gaining professional points about naval warfare which would be of service to their naval staffs at home. The French commander asked Captain Smith if there were any objection to his going to New Orleans, where, of course, there were a great many French subjects living. It was quite within his international rights that he should go, and Captain Smith consented. When Butler, who was disembarking his troops and preparing to occupy the city, heard of this, he took a contrary view. "'We don't want the Frenchman around. He might make trouble,' he said. Captain Smith sent me aboard the gunboat to say that General Butler would rather that she waited a few days before proceeding up the river. "'General Butler, General Butler,' said the French commander. "'Oh, yes, he is l'avocat général. He says I shall stay. Voila, I will go. So he went, leaving the lawyer-general pretty angry but helpless. 
Our social life ashore while we were off New Orleans was limited mostly to the scowls of the people we passed. But there were a few Union families where we were welcome. The courage of their loyalty in the midst of what seemed to us universal disloyalty was very appealing. In most instances they were families who had recently come from the North and had not yet imbibed the sentiments of their surroundings. But the true Southern woman would have as soon invited Satan himself as a Union officer to her house. To the Creoles we were loathsome Yankees, and in turn we thought of them as rebels. Confederate was a little used word on the Federal side in those days. As an example of our own feeling, I recall an occurrence during the visit of a British gunboat, the Rinaldo. She was commanded by Commander, later Vice Admiral, Hewitt. His sympathies, as were the sympathies of so many Englishmen, were with the Confederacy. As New Orleans was now again in the control of the United States, there was nothing to prevent his presence there. It was merely a visit to the port of a country with which England was at peace. He was popular with the New Orleans people, and went about a great deal in Creole society, and in return gave entertainments on board the Rinaldo, at which the Confederate cause was acclaimed, and to which none of the Federal officers were invited. This was somewhat exasperating to the Federals. One day, when there was a party on board the Rinaldo, the band began to play the Bonnie Blue Flag, which was a Confederate air. Captain Smith sent for me at once and told me to go on board the Rinaldo and tell Hewitt that that air was not permitted in New Orleans. Hewitt was pretty angry when he received the captain's message, but he had to recognize that this time we were in the right. The air was not played on board the Rinaldo again. Later, Hewitt put his sympathy for the Confederate cause into action. Though an officer of the British Navy, he became commander of one of the blockade runners which were fitted out in England. When our government privately sent word, as I understand that it did, that any British naval officers who were taken serving on a blockade runner would be returned to the British government in double irons, Hewitt resigned his command. Many years afterward, in 1886, I happened to meet him in the United Service Club in London. We had a pleasant conversation without once alluding to the time when I had told him that he must revise his musical program. Being on board a man-of-war off New Orleans through the summer was like being in a floating oven. It was out of the question to sleep in our cabins. We slept on deck. I do not suppose that the character of the mosquitoes on the Mississippi has changed with the passage of time. There was a big kind, popularly called galley nippers, which seemed to find shoe leather an effective means of sharpening their proboscises before they reached the vulnerable part of your ankle. Our existence was pretty monotonous for naval officers in the midst of the Great War. We envied the men on the other ships on the blockade or up the river with Farragut. They were at least on the move, though they saw little fighting. But we had one compensation. While the health of the officers and crews up the river had been bad, we had extemporized a distilling plant on board the Mississippi, which gave us pure water to drink, and our health had been excellent. End of chapter 6